through the hallways of academia and on the face of the moon the footprints of conquest haven't left us any room to say Greetings, and welcome to the 18th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement. This is Thistle Pedersen. I am an eco-feminist singer-songwriter from Madison, Wisconsin. I started WLRN after learning the ropes of collectively produced radio shows from Madison's community radio station, WORT 89.9 FM. Today's WLRN broadcast is about prostitution, pornography, and sex trafficking, and how this male-driven industry harms and exploits girls and women. We will hear excerpts of interviews WLRN's Julia Beck did with Julie Bindel, lesbian feminist journalist and author who is releasing a book this month entitled The Pimping of Prostitution, Abolishing the Sex Work Myth. We'll also hear from Renee Gerlich, feminist writer and blogger from New Zealand, and from Sabrina Valise a feminist and representative of Space International, an organization that supports the abolitionist model to help women exit the sex trade safely and with dignity. In addition, there are excerpts from an interview I did with Samantha Berg of johnstompers.com. But first, here are the WLRN headlines for this Thursday, October 5th, 2017. In London on September 13th, an unprecedented act of political violence against women took place. Trans-identified male rights activist Tara Flick Wood violently attacked 60-year-old Maria McLaughlin at what was intended to be a civil discussion about the meaning of the word gender and its legal implications. The event titled, What is Gender?, organized by Vince Allen, was also meant to serve as an open discussion about the UK's new Gender Recognition Act, a proposed act that would remove the requirement of a gender recognition certificate and make it legal to change one's sex on legal documents through self-identification alone. The event was initially scheduled to take place at New Cross Learning, a community library, until Sisters Uncut, a British direct action group advocating for domestic violence services, tweeted an announcement describing the discussion as, quote, a one-sided debate of the Gender Recognition Act with the sole aim of spreading transmisogynist views, unquote. 
After countless phone calls and emails, New Cross Learning canceled the event on September 12th, the day before it was meant to happen, and the organizers were forced to find a new place to gather in. They decided to hold the event in a then-secret location, the University Women's Club in Audley Square, and women were told to meet at Speaker's Corner, where they would then be directed to the event. The group Action for Trans Health London posted the new location, and between 20 to 30 protesters found out about Speaker's Corner and showed up to harass attendees, with some shouting, Kill all turfs. McLaughlin reported to Feminist Current that while one man was trying to grab her camera, Wood ran over and began punching her. A third man pushed her to the ground, where she was kicked and punched. The rest of the women had to take different routes to even get to the actual event, all the while being stalked by more protesters. During the talk, protesters continued to shout, cutting the event short when the police were called. Action for Trans Health London did not apologize, instead saying that they were, quote, proud that many self-organizing activists, allies, and supporters stood united against hatred, misogyny, and intimidation, unquote. WLRN's Thistle Pedersen interviewed Trixie and Ruby, two organizers of the What is Gender conference, as well as Julia Long, a speaker at the conference. The full-length interview can be found on the WLRN WordPress site under the Interviews tab. The Royal Society Award for Science Book of the Year goes to Cordelia Fine, Professor of the History and Philosophy of Science at Melbourne University. This prestigious award for science books exists to celebrate the best in popular science writing and has previously been won by Stephen Hawking, Jared Diamond, and Stephen Jay Gould. Fine's book, Testosterone Rex, takes a critical and forensic eye to gender stereotypes, ultimately debunking all pseudoscientific explanations for behavioral and temperamental differences in men and women. It has been described as, quote, a cracking critique of the men are from Mars, women are from Venus hypothesis. Fine has previously written about gender stereotypes and bias from a scientific standpoint. Her book, Delusions of Gender, also challenged the idea of innate brain differences between males and females. On Tuesday, September 26th, Saudi Arabia announced in a royal decree broadcasted live on television that it would allow women to drive unaccompanied by men. Saudi leaders hope the new decision will help the economy by increasing gender parity in the workplace. Women have not been allowed to drive in the absolute monarchy ruled by Sharia law. Instead, they have had to either pay for cars driven by men or to travel with their male guardian. It was believed that it was inappropriate for women to drive and that men would not know what to do if they saw a woman driving in the car beside them. Some men even believed that driving cars would lead to women becoming more promiscuous and therefore lead to the collapse of the Saudi family. The new policy will be in effect starting in June 2018. A French court has ruled that an 11-year-old girl consented to having sex with a 28-year-old man because the girl did not vocally or physically protest the act. The man has been sentenced with charges of sexual abuse of a minor rather than rape charges, although the minor's family insists that she was raped, with her mother stating that she, quote, went into autopilot without emotion and without reaction. Children's rights groups in France have called for the introduction of laws similar to those in the UK, in which the intentional penetration of any orifice of a child under age 13 is classified as rape. The City of London has announced that it will not renew Uber's license to operate within the city. Transport in London has based its decision on the grounds that the ride-sharing company demonstrates a, quote, lack of corporate responsibility, unquote, as a result of its failure to report sexual assaults by its drivers and its less-than-rigorous background checks. 
Between May 2015 and May 2016, London police investigated 32 cases of rape or assault of a passenger. In addition, a letter by Inspector Neil Villany stated that Uber had chosen not to notify police after being made aware of criminal activity among its drivers on more than half a dozen occasions. It is estimated that there are 30,000 to 40,000 Uber drivers in the city and 3.5 million Londoners that rely on them. Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi has released a statement apologizing for the mistakes made and has announced Uber's plans to challenge London's decision in court. The license expires on September 30th. In related news, Shade Agbula has created a new taxi firm where all of the drivers will be women and the only accepted passengers are women and children. The British mother feels that the success of her new business, Anissa Cars, will lie in its prioritization of female passengers' safety, which she believes is not taken seriously enough. Anissa's Cars features many safety precautions that Uber lacks, like a guardian option for children and a booking slip system so the driver knows that the person picking up the child is the right person. Agbula also part-time runs a charity that aids women with health issues and hopes that her taxi firm will cover the whole of South London by the end of next year. Slutwalk Toronto has announced its plans to partner with Maggie's Toronto Sex Workers Action Project, a lobby group that advocates for full decriminalization of brothels and the purchase of sex. In an effort to center sex workers' rights, the event has essentially partnered with an organization that openly promotes youth prostitution as a viable life option. In 2011, Phoenix Ann McKee, who worked with Maggie's to create a guide for youth sex workers, advocated for the decriminalization of men who purchase sex from trafficked youth. McKee, herself a former child prostitute, argued that the sex trade, quote, helped her out in her life, unquote. Vancouver Dyke March also announced that the Grand Marshal for the 2018 Dyke March was the organization Sex Workers United Against Violence, another vocal proponent of the decriminalization of brothel owners and pimps. In 2007, the organization even filed a constitutional challenge to Canada's prostitution laws. An 18-year-old ban on conversion therapy has been overturned in Brazil this month. Judge Waldemar de Carvalho ruled in favor of Rosangela Justino, an evangelical Christian and psychologist whose license was revoked after she was caught providing conversion therapy in 2016. Justino is infamous for proclaiming that homosexuality is a disease, saying that she feels, quote, directed by God to help people who are homosexual. Many took to Twitter and other social media outlets using the hashtag CuraGay, meaning gay cure in Portuguese, to express their outrage. The ban on conversion therapy was first put into place by Brazil's Federal Council on Psychology, who has vowed to fight the new ruling. Earlier this month, women from all over the Femisphere gathered to attend the annual Ohio Lesbian Festival in Legend Valley, Ohio. The festival is a not-for-profit, volunteer-driven, women-only event designed to promote women's community, music, and art. It featured such beloved performers as Betty, Kristen Ford, and Chris Matthews. WLRN's own Julia Beck attended the festival and called the experience exhilarating. Recently, two members of the Women's Liberation Front Wolf met with Brianne Nadeau, a member of the D.C. City Council, to discuss her bill that would codify the Department of Motor Vehicles policy of allowing people to mark a third gender on their driver's licenses. The council member was receptive to Wolf's arguments about why this is dangerous, but would not commit to withdrawing the bill at this time. She also let Wolf know that at some point in the future there would be public hearings on the bill. Wolf will monitor the bill, let members know of any future public hearings, and make a decision as to whether to testify publicly.
In a letter dated September 5, 2017, Wolf asked California legislators to reconsider the rush to mandate through SB 219 that long-term care facilities for the elderly and disabled must allow male residents to share rooms and bathing facilities with elderly women or disabled women and girls based on subjective claims of gender identity and removing the right of women and girls to complain about their loss of privacy. Elder abuse and abuse of dependent adults in particular continues to be a serious problem in California. Wolf believes it is irresponsible to create, as SB 219 does, additional opportunities for men to abuse women in sex-specific spaces, while removing women's rights to object to the elimination of their privacy in shared housing situations. Natasha Chart, Wolf's acting board chair, had this to say about the matter. Elderly and disabled women are particularly vulnerable to sexual violence and abuse. What's seen in patterns of sexual predation is that males tend to show a strong preference for victims whom they perceive as less likely to either put up a fight or be believed afterwards. There is no broad category of women who is not sexually harassed or preyed on by her male peers, who is safe. So there can be no broad category of men who are above suspicion. In another act of male violence that has spurred the typical reactions of calling for tougher gun control and cries of mental illness, 64-year-old Stephen Paddock gunned down 58 people and injured 400 more on October 1st in Las Vegas at a country and western music show. Mass media and police investigations so far have not revealed the shooter's motives. Something that is lacking in coverage of this tragic event is the observation that these acts of violence are committed by men, despite women having higher diagnosis rates of mental illness. It is clear that naming the problem of male violence in analyzing these shootings will help us all to better understand the systemic nature of these crimes. On September 27th, Playboy tycoon Hugh Hefner died of natural causes at age 91. Hefner founded the pornography enterprise Playboy in 1953 and presided as editor-in-chief until his death. Hefner, who once declared feminists to be, quote, our natural enemy, unquote, devoted his life to the sexualization and dehumanization of women and girls. His ashes will be situated beside the crypt containing Marilyn Monroe, whose nude photographs were published by Hefner without her consent in the inaugural issue of Playboy. In light of this news, WLRN would like to share a quote from Andrea Dworkin's speech, Prostitution and Male Supremacy. I want to bring us back to basics. Prostitution. What is it? It is the use of a woman's body for sex by a man. He pays money. He does what he wants. The minute you move away from what it really is, you move away from prostitution into the world of ideas. You will feel better. You will have a better time. It is more fun. There is plenty to discuss, but you will be discussing ideas, not prostitution. Prostitution is not an idea. It is the mouth, the vagina, the rectum, penetrated usually by a penis, sometimes hands, sometimes objects, by one man, and then another, and then another, and then another, and then another. That's what it is. I ask you to think about your own bodies. If you can do so outside the world that the pornographers have created in your minds, the flat, dead, floating mouths and vaginas and anuses of women, I ask you to think concretely about your own bodies used that way. How sexy is it? Is it fun? The people who defend prostitution and pornography want you to feel a kinky little thrill every time you think of something being stuck in a woman. I want you to feel the delicate tissues in her body that are being misused. 
I want you to feel what it feels like when it happens over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Because that is what prostitution is. Which is why, from the perspective of a woman in prostitution or a woman who has been in prostitution, the distinctions other people make between whether the event took place in the Plaza Hotel or somewhere more inelegant are not the distinctions that matter. These are irreconcilable perceptions with irreconcilable premises. Of course the circumstances must matter, you say. No, they do not, because we are talking about the use of the mouth, the vagina, and the rectum. The circumstances don't mitigate or modify what prostitution is. And so, many of us are saying that prostitution is intrinsically abusive. Let me be clear. I am talking to you about prostitution per se, without more violence, without extra violence, without a woman being hit, without a woman being pushed. Prostitution, in and of itself, is an abuse of a woman's body. Those of us who say this are accused of being simple-minded. But prostitution is very simple. And if you are not simple-minded, you will never understand it. The more complex you manage to be, the further away from the reality you will be. The safer you will be. The happier you will be. The more fun you will have discussing the issue of prostitution. In prostitution, no woman stays whole. It is impossible to use a human body in the way women's bodies are used in prostitution and to have a whole human being by the end of it or in the middle of it, or close to the beginning of it. It's impossible. And no woman gets whole again, later, after. You have to weaken and destroy every institution that is part of how men rule over women. And don't ask if you should. The question is how, not if. How? Do one thing, rather than spend your lives debating if you should do this, or if you should do that, and do they really deserve it, and is it really fair? Fair? Is it really fair? Darlings, we could get the machine guns out tonight. Fair? We break our own hearts with these questions. 5 a.m. Friday morning. Thursday night. Far from sleep. I'm still up and driving. Can't go home. Obviously. So I'll just change direction Cause they'll soon know where I live And I wanna live Got a full time and some chips With me and a gun And a man on my back And I sang Holy, holy, as he buttoned down his pants You can laugh, it's kind of funny The things you think at times like these Like I haven't seen Barbados So I must get out of this Yes, I wore a slinky red thing does that mean I should spread for you, your friends, your father, Mr. Ed? Was me and a gun and a man on my back, but I haven't 
seen Barbados, so I must get out of this. And I know what this means, me and Jesus, a few years back, used to hide, and he said, it's your choice, babe, just remember, I don't think you'll be back in three days' time, so you choose well. Tell me what's right Is it my right To be on my stomach A fretzel It's me And a gun And a man On my back But I haven't Seen Barbados So I must Get out of this And do Biscuits are soft and sweet These things go through your head When there's a man on your back You're pushed flat on your stomach It's not a classic Cadillac Me and a gun and a man on my back but I haven't seen Barbados, so I must get out of this. I haven't seen Barbados, so I must get out of this. That was Me and a Gun by Tori Amos. Samantha Berg is a journalist, activist, and radical feminist. Originally a reproductive rights and anti-poverty advocate, in 2002, she began working against prostitution, specifically seeking to reduce men's demand for paid sex. In recent years, Samantha has been organizing conferences and public events to build community among radical feminists. WLRN's Thistle Pedersen caught Sam on her way to meet up with Lierre Keith and Megan Murphy in Los Angeles last week, where they were filmed for Vice Land's program Hate Thy Neighbor. Thistle asked Samantha to talk about the current laws surrounding prostitution and pornography. Can you talk about how the laws impact the current climate and policies around prostitution and pornography? Sure. Um, currently, there is a very fuzzy line between legal prostitution and illegal prostitution. Um, the best example I have for that is I think everybody has wondered at some point how the porn industry can operate out of California when prostitution is illegal in California. That fuzzy line between legal and illegal is the canyon that victims of sex-based slavery fall into. Uh, feminists need to step into that place where men can get their kicks, but women are helpless to do anything about it, thanks to the legal loopholes that permit rape for profit. Yeah, and can you give us an example of one of those legal loopholes? Mm-hmm. I think probably the, a very well-known one is that even though prostitution in the United States is famously only legal in Nevada, in every city in this country, you can find escorts, wink, wink. You know, we won't say right. it's legal prostitution, but if a man wants to order a woman at 9 p.m., another woman at 10 p.m., 
and another at 11, it's very easy for him to do. And men are almost permitted to lie when they are questioned on this activity. You know, they say that they pay $200 for a private dance, and everybody looks away and walks away. Yeah, that's horrible. So can you tell us about the Nordic model, which is a legal model that's been implemented in Scandinavian countries, I believe, that's actually reducing the number of men who are buying sex from women. How does it work exactly? Well, the Nordic model, as it's known generally, was first implemented in Sweden in 1999. It's called the sex buyer law because what distinguishes it is that it criminalizes soliciting for sex but not being a prostitute and selling sex. The political theory is that it's not a crime to be so desperate and impoverished that you feel compelled to sell sex to survive. However, it is a crime to sexually exploit vulnerable people. And Sweden has figured this out, as has Norway, Finland, Iceland, France, Canada, and a handful of other countries. And the reason more and more countries are adopting it is because it's working fabulously. It's actually reducing the number of men buying sex from women. These are not hardened criminals we are speaking about. Most Johns, most men who pay for sex are ordinary men. It just takes a little bit of pressure to change their minds. For as much as men say they have to have prostitution, they need it. You know, you threaten to take their car away. It's amazing how much they don't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this, the Nordic model gives men an incentive to stop their bad habits. Mm-hmm. At the same time, protecting prostituted women. Myself, I would love to see prostitution disappear. I would. That's not reality. I I believe that Sweden has found a way to navigate the reality of prostitution very practically, which is to say, yes, women will sell the only thing that they have when they are desperate and poor, and we will not punish them for that. But the minute that John starts getting violent, the minute he gets violent with her, she can call the police on him. But what we found, even more importantly, is not the number of calls being made to the police, just the threat alone. If you do not de-escalate your violence, I'm calling the cops. Just that prostitute having the power in her hands to say that has dramatically reduced violent crimes against prostituted women in Nordic model countries. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the difference between legalization of prostitution and decriminalization? I think to the average layperson, those are easy to muddle. Um, To those of us who've been researching this for many years, they're crystal clear. And let me try to explain the best I can. Legalization folds prostitution into a legal, regulated business system, or at least it tries to. We can see the failure of this very evidently with the pornography industry, which has been legal for many, many years. And yet we see many porn videos where there are no condoms, no safety regulations, none of these workplace safety habits that other workplaces put in place. So if legalizing prostitution was going to make safety for sex workers happen, well, It would have happened in the porn industry, and it hasn't. Decriminalization is a little bit different. When when we say decriminalization, we're often talking about the New Zealand model, which essentially legalizes but without regulation. It's a bit of a Wild West situation where anything goes, it's kind of loosey out there, and it's been a disaster, the New Zealand model. Other countries are not picking it up the way that the Nordic model has been picked up around the world, most recently in Ireland and France and Canada. Really? They just picked up the Nordic model in those countries? In the past three, four years, yes. Because it's working so well. 
It's great to have a, a process that can save lives, reduce violence, and really isn't that expensive to put into place. Again, reminding you, most Johns are not hardened criminals. It does not take very much to convince them, no, go do something else for a leisure activity that is not buying a person for sex. Mm -hmm. And why do you think the United States hasn't implemented the Nordic model yet? Oh, I think the USA is far too entrenched in capitalism to do something like that. I think there's this ethic here that if it can be sold, you have to sell it. It must be sold. You know, the idea that, that there could be a market for something, and maybe we shouldn't. Well, that's just anathema in the United States. Yeah. But it, things are changing in individual places. Small places in, like, Seattle, the city of Seattle, you do see some movement. It's just not happening on a statewide or a federal level. Yeah. Are there any pieces of legislation or laws getting pushed right now in the United States that feminists should know about? Yeah. Well, with our acute political crisis happening thanks to the questionable leadership in office, I don't think the current climate is amenable to law advancements on prostitution. Nothing is going very well for women in this country these days. The most hopeful change I've seen from my corner in the Pacific Northwest, have come out of Seattle. I never thought I would say that police should not go after pimps. But what Seattle police officers have found is that when you take a pimp out, other pimps just move right into that territory. If you need to stop the pimps, you need to stop the John. And uh, good on the Seattle Police Department for finally starting to figure it out. I do hope the laws start to catch up. Great. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our WLRM listeners who are largely radical and lesbian feminists? I say that giving a green light to men to rent women's reproductive organs by the hour will only ever expand sexual slavery. It will never make conditions for those slaves any better. More men consuming prostitutes means a bigger supply of prostitutes are required. And while the number of men who want to pay for sex may go up, the number of women willing to sell it does not go up in less extreme circumstances. Prostitution goes up in times of war, not because women's rights go up in times of war. This will never work. The idea that you can tell men, you can abuse her a little, but don't go too far, it's never going to work. The Nordic model, criminalizing men, asking them to be the better people, we know them to be, that's what works. So speak out, speak over, speak under, speak through the noise. Speak loud so I can hear you, I want to know you, I want to hear your real voice. Next up, we will hear excerpts from interviews that WLRN's Julia Beck did with Renee Gerlich, Sabrina Valise, and Julie Bindle. Renee Gerlich curated the exhibition entitled Too Much Truth, Women's Global Resistance to Sexploitation in Wellington, New Zealand by gathering visual materials from abolitionist organizations, survivors, and feminists from all over the world. Renee wants to create a picture of what the global resistance to women's oppression looks like from within a woman-centered space. Sabrina Valise experienced prostitution in the South Pacific under three different legislative models and is now the South Pacific representative of Space International. She formerly volunteered for the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, but left once it became clear 
that decriminalization is unable to fix sex trade problems. Finally, Julie Bindel speaks her mind on the global sex trade, her upcoming book on the sex work myth, and how the feminist movement should be inclusive. Here is a portion of those interviews. I know that you're not having an opening for this exhibition. Why is that? I don't see the support for it at the moment. We're in, in the place that I'm having the exhibitions. In Wellington, the hostility at the moment toward anyone who wants to have a critical discussion on prostitution is really fervent. And I've bought a security camera to put in, in the space because I have to be present in the space looking after the gallery for the week. And I do feel unsafe. And a spokesperson from the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, NZPC, that's the local sex trade lobby, one of their spokespeople has already organised a poster campaign and asked lobbyists, liberal activists, to help put posters around the city just to counteract my exhibition. So just because I, as an individual, am hiring a community space for one week, there's this backlash already just because a woman is speaking, basically. That's so extreme. It, it seems so yeah. extreme to me that they're yeah. doing that. And ridiculous at the same time. You wish you could just laugh about it. I would just laugh about it if it wasn't so vicious. Have you been labeled a swerf? Because I feel like once a woman is labeled either a swerf or a turf, then all the violence against her is suddenly okay. All the time. And again, it's one of those things that I wish I could laugh at. When I hear that term, I just think, surely most people want the language that they use, especially um, when it's political, to have the ring of truth about it. And I hear that term and I just think, it's so clunky and ineloquent and <laughs> lazy. Um, you know, before I would ever use a term like that, I'm sure I would unpack it and go, you know, what does it mean? What does it stand for? What are the assumptions implicit in that phrase? I think it just demonstrates how patriarchal our culture really is, that it's really popularly acceptable to throw around a term that's so threatening to women, yet so clumsy, so embarrassingly clumsy. <laughs> Like, the term sex worker, exclusionary, radical feminist, like, it leverages the labour rights movement. All that sort of liberal chaos and hypocrisy, to me, is sort of encapsulated in this term swift, and I, I wish I could just cringe at it. It's, it's hate speech, and it's used to intimidate and harass women, so, unfortunately, it's something that we have to kind of deal with quite seriously. I know several women who have come out of prostitution, in fact, one who hasn't managed to exit yet, who purely by virtue of the fact that she's stuck in prostitution means that, you know, it's commercialised rape. She's been called a swift for saying, for describing the reality of her existence at the moment, basically. You cannot get more misogynist than that. Would you call yourself a radical feminist? Yeah, I think that term describes women who support women's liberation, have an outlook that's based on solidarity with all women, and work to dismantle the institutions that are core to propping up male dominance. If that's what radical feminism is, then I'm happy to be called a radical feminist, sure. In Wellington, where I am locally, what I can see here is that the Chow brothers are um, 
pimps in Wellington who own about 70% of the sex trade here, and they've also been planning to build a five-storey super brothel in Auckland. Because the sex trade lobby is insistent on this notion of sex work, which sanitises and legitimises um, the sex trade by basically uh, cherry-picking those voices who are willing to advocate for the sex trade. It's leading to a climate where people are far more motivated to challenge people who are wanting to question prostitution itself than they are to challenge people like the Chow brothers who profit massively from the exploitation of women around the country. When I look at the kinds of things that the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective is doing with this notion of sex work, oh, it's, it's, it's sickening. There were reports that came out last week in the media. Um, this researcher who's been interviewing teenagers who are you know, underage, who are in prostitution in New Zealand, and who are in situations where their families are profiting, um, prostituting them and things like that. And the researcher who's been doing these interviews is wanting, obviously, to have a critical discussion. Um, And the way the NZPC has responded is by saying, that's child abuse, that's not sex work. It's not relevant to a conversation on prostitution, on, on sex work. The Prostitutes Collective often frames rape as theft, they downplay the need for exit services because obviously implicit in the idea of sex work is that it's legitimate and it's chosen. So why would you need, you don't need exit services to get out of any other industry. There was a woman who set up a safe house just for women in prostitution and sometime I think the beginning of last year opened. And the media tends to defer to the prostitutes collective on just about any time it discusses prostitution, it will give the last word to the sex trade lobby because our sex trade lobby is government funded. From that position, yeah, what they actually do is promote the sex work narrative, which is inevitable anywhere where you would have decriminalisation or legalisation. And so when they were given the last word on the safe house, they said, basically, I suppose it's necessary, but only 10% of women would want to leave prostitution anyway. So they downplayed the culture of coercion that we're all drowning in, which constantly objectifies women. And, you know, I walk down the street just around the corner from me and there's brothels and strip bars with pictures of women holding wads of cash and and smiling brightly. Like, clearly, coercion is everywhere. Yeah, you mentioned that before where, you know, reporters are kind of using softer words to describe the actual realities of what's going on. Yeah. Uh, One woman I know who has been stuck in prostitution for about 15 or 16 years since she was a young teenager. Actually, most women I know who have been in prostitution in New Zealand or know of started as young teenagers underage in the very situation that I was saying, you know, NZPC will dismiss as being child abuse but not sex work in any shape or form. She sent me what the Prostitutes Collective called the New Workers' Starter Kit. So it's the manual that women are given if they go to the Prostitutes Collective after um, entering prostitution. What's in this manual? Uh, it's 
it's stomach turning. I have a copy of it at home. The woman who sent it to me calls it grooming literature. That's her perspective on it as a, a survivor. And absolutely, it is grooming literature. And again, what you were suggesting about the implications of using the term sex work. They talk about sex worker burnout in the manual, what to do if you're experiencing sex worker burnout, which is obviously a euphemism for post-traumatic stress. And tells women to take yoga classes, buy a pair of running shoes, and then in the same breath says, because also, you know, your body is your biggest asset and it's really important to look after it. Which, incidentally, is how pimps talk, (laughs) as we know. And this document is funded by New Zealand's Ministry of Health, which funds the sex trade lobby. You know, you turn the pages and there are sections on what do you do if a man demands anal penetration. It's one of the most horrific, devastating things that I've read in my life. New Zealand's Ministry of Health is funding pamphlets distributed to women that tells them how to tolerate anal rape. And that is done in the name of the sex work narrative. And sex work is a soft word for prostitution. But nobody can say that because there'll be a swerve. Yeah. Although, you know, at the same time, they're all about reclaiming language, you know, like so that's one of the implications of these narratives is the way it then normalizes prostitution and normalizes the celebration of it, which exacerbates this grooming culture. It means, you know, just about freaking every institution is complicit in ways that um, is, you know, fully state sanctioned. Recently, one of the university student magazines, which you would think should be the last kind of media outlet to get on this bandwagon. But student media is fundamentally supposed to be critical of that. And I I think they're becoming some of the worst. I actually think that the university here locally in Wellington, Victoria University, that the succession of editors who have been responsible for the student magazine are basically culpable for trafficking. They have since probably about 2012. Periodically, they'll publish very sanitising and celebratory articles about so-called sex work prostitution. They've published articles that they've asked for written by women who run escort agencies. So recently there was one written by a woman who I think said that she was in her early 20s and that she loves doing sex work because it gives her um, lots of money and free time and flexible work hours. This is a pattern now. I keep hearing the same story. The name of the article was The Taboo of the Unrepentant Whore. In the first couple of sentences, she announces that she proudly calls herself a whore. And now, when you look at how the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective is totally entwined with the global sex trade lobby and the network of sex work projects, the international lobby, and their vice president has been telling women to call themselves whores, to reclaim the term whore and be proud of it. So 
it's not coincidental that women who put trust in these lobbies because they think that it's like a union or or a charity or something like that start adopting that language and then that's when we get called swifts because we understand the level of grooming involved what do you see the effect of media being on young girls when girls and women grow up in a culture that saturated and when the places that you would normally go to for a critical response or have some trust in you know when even the student magazines and newspapers and national radio people put a lot of faith in national radio that was the outlet where uh, one of the nzpc spokespeople called trafficking a working holiday and that wasn't really challenged after that they did a, a very long series of podcasts on prostitution claiming to be investigative where most of the interviewees seemed to be pimps and people who would, were towing the line on on sex work and stuff so you just can't find those critical narratives or the critical perspectives in 2010 the programs coordinator at the new zealand prostitutes collective who's actually a man so is the community liaison so-called community liaison who actually got me lobbied out of a job the programs coordinator callum bennett he wrote this article which was published in the network of sex work projects the international sex trade lobby and the article was called their words are killing us and in it he references women like shayla jeffries melissa farley andrea dawkin janice raymond and he he uses their descriptions of prostitution to suggest that they are the ones who are doing the objectifying of women and that that language constitutes violence and makes them worse than corrupt police officers who rape, worse than Johns who don't pay, worse than members of the public who throw rotten eggs and bottles at street workers, that's what he said. That just shows to what extent the lobby will publicly endorse the bullying and harassment of feminists. They are being publicly funded to sanitise that language. What do you think would be a good way for feminists and for people who want to speak out against this to actually do so? I mean, how do we get the word out? I obviously think about that quite a lot, but I feel like there's things that I'm personally focusing on at the moment which relate to, I guess, the best notions that I have at the moment on on what to do Um, and one of them is that I'm really enamoured of this idea of building a culture of resistance. That's partly why I'm holding this exhibition and working together this kind of visual material that um, women are producing. There's no organised resistance in New Zealand so I think if you really want to operate on a radical feminist basis here it's also means looking for the kinds of things that you can do quite independently so for me that has been trying to encourage an emergence of the culture of resistance do you ever get scared of speaking out and how how do you overcome that fear i do get afraid of speaking out and 
that is the work, you know. If there wasn't a backlash, it would probably be because we were living in a post-patriarchal society. I'm just trying to recognise that, is, that that's the world that we live in and t- take it in my stride as much as possible. I think radical feminism has given me more of a capacity for solidarity with women. The more my eyes open, it's really, it's humanising because you're no longer in that position of mystification, you're in a position of solidarity. And for all the stress involved with mobilising a radical feminist politics, that's kind of why I'm having this exhibition because I want to be in a space where I can have a taste of that experience. Well, is there anything else that you would like to add for our listeners who are mostly radical feminists and lesbians? Ah, solidarity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, keep up the good fight. That was Renee Gerlich speaking about her art exhibition focused on the sex trade and prostitution in New Zealand. Next up, hear excerpts from WLRN's Julia Beck's interview with Sabrina Valise, a woman who successfully exited the sex trade in New Zealand. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the moment? At the moment, um, I'm one of the newer members of Space International. Um, Space stands for Survivors of Prostitution Abuse Calling for Enlightenment, and it's a collective of members from all around the world, and we advocate for the Nordic model um, of prostitution law. In the past, you worked with the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, but you no longer support that organization. What happened? The um, NZPC, that's, um, you know, the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, I joined that prior to um, decriminalization and I just worked on and off as a volunteer over a couple of decades. And decriminalization at that point was just on paper. It was a theory. And it had never been done anywhere in the world. And New Zealand was the very first country in the world to pass the Prostitution Reform Act, which happened in 2003, to implement full decriminalisation. So it was only after that passed that we started seeing what that actually meant in real-life terms. What I saw in reality compared to the theory didn't line up and I didn't agree with the reality that was going on. So I had to look around and see, well, what is going to get the results that I'm wanting here? Because um, what I was wanting was to put power in the hands of the people who are actually in the trade and to be able to open up options to um, go back into mainstream work or into mainstream work for the first time, depending on the individual. How did the Prostitution Reform Act affect women in New Zealand? It didn't happen, you know, overnight. Things started shifting over time. Within the first few months, what happened was the massage parlours got called brothels now, and they rolled out a thing called all-inclusive. It wasn't something that we'd seen prior. An all-inclusive is a fee that is paid by the punter to the receptionist on behalf of the business owner or the business pimp, as I like to call them. The pimp will say it's the basics. And the receptionist will say it's the basics. But the punter doesn't know that. The punter thinks all-inclusive means anything he wants. So what this leaves is a situation where the women who are working in the trade have to fight with the punters from word go every single time. It also means that there is no negotiation as to what services are being done and what isn't. And there's no negotiation as to what money she chooses to do that for. So it's either you accept these 
terms and conditions or you don't. But it's the same across all of the massage parlours with very little um, fluctuation or across all the brothels. On top of that, the um, business pimps take 50%. They started introducing fees that we hadn't seen before. So there was a um, shift fee. So the second the woman steps through the door, she is instantly in debt. And then they started increasing the number of women on the shift. So where they may have only had five or six before, they suddenly got 20, 25. The idea of that was to get as many options for the punter as possible, then lowered prices to get more punters through the door because the pimp still gets paid 50% of every single time a punter comes in, whereas the girls are now competing. And so what I started seeing after around two years of the law reform was women offering unsafe sex for a price in order to get more money. Full decriminalisation means that not only are the women in the trade decriminalised, which I actually agree with that one part of it, but it also means that the pimps are decriminalised or the business pimps, the business owners, massage parlours owners, brothel owners, escort agency owners are all decriminalised. However, it works more for them as a legalisation because their business is legal. They own a legal business paying taxes and so it's all above board. But it also decriminalises the punter, which means that it increases the demand because now men aren't doing anything wrong and it starts becoming like, oh, this is so normal. Let's all go down on a Friday night to the local brothel, which we never used to see either. Is the Nordic model any different than this? The Nordic model decriminalises the women or everyone in prostitution. So the men, women, trans people, non-binary or other um, gender identified. That part of it is the same as decriminalisation. What differs is that it's three-pronged. It criminalises the pimps or any person who is making a living of other people in prostitution and the punter. And the third prong is it introduces exit services. And those services are chosen by the people who are in the trade and they say, you know, this is what I would like to access and this is what I'm not interested in. When the worker is decriminalised but the um, person paying is automatically a criminal, then that person paying is going to be very careful not to do anything like, well, violence because they're already in the wrong. It only takes a single phone call and the person who's automatically getting arrested is the punter, not the girl. It means that you can develop a relationship with the police because you're not afraid of being um, criminalised or arrested and it also means that the people who are making their living off those in prostitution are automatically criminals, and they should be. How did you first get involved with space? It's an interesting story, actually. I was sick and I had to get surgery, and I went over to Australia to my mum's place because, you know, the surgery was happening in Melbourne, and um, there was a stray cat. And I started feeding the cat, and she said, look, if you're going to start feeding this cat, you've got to move back to Australia and look after it because I am not going to. Um, So I moved back to Australia. And then I started up Australian Radical Feminists because, um, not because I was the greatest radical feminist in the world, but rather because I didn't know any radical feminists in Australia and I wanted to meet some. And it was through there I found out about the world's oldest depression conference in Melbourne. And at the very last minute, I got a speaking spot for 10 minutes. And Julie Bindle and Rachel Moran had 
flown over to Melbourne for this. And they listened to me speak and we chatted after this conference had happened. And I was invited to come to London to speak at Shifting the Burden in Parliament. And so I flew over, did that. And then um, I just started to get to know them. I started to get to know abolition, the actual work involved, put myself out there and became a member of SPACE. Do you see a relationship between porn and the global sex trade? Absolutely, yeah. Gonzo porn has become a standard normal in porn, so that's what people are looking up when they get on the internet. Even young boys, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, they look up the word boobs and suddenly they're confronted with gonzo porn. And, you know, it's an atrocious money-making threat to society because it's changing the way people perceive sexuality when it's getting them that young before they've even had a chance to um, explore their own sexuality. A lot of it is extremely misogynist. It's violent. Of course, in the brothels, what's happening is men are demanding more and more violent acts. But even in society, you've got men demanding violent acts with willing partners. And so in brothels, it's expected that if the wife or girlfriend won't do it at home, that woman I'm paying will. When you say gonzo porn, what do you mean by that? There was um, there was softcore porn and there was hardcore porn. Now hardcore porn would be considered soft. Gonzo is pushing boundaries, or originally that was the idea of it. Gonzo, realistically, it's violence. It's violence against women that has been sexualized. There is actually a movement now of ex-porn stars who have come out and said what's happened when they've actually gone on to film. They've believed one set of things is going to happen to then be gang-raped, held down, to be saying no, to be crying. They've even vomited on set and it's still gone on. They've talked about being torn and there have been women being carted off in an ambulance to go and be sewn back up from what's happened. So there's a movement that is against this that's coming from within the trade itself. And they're against the choosy choice feminist party line? Yeah, because they've experienced it and they didn't have empowerment. They didn't have choice. What they had was only the choice to enter. But what happened once they'd made that choice was wholly out of their hands. So there's really no effort at helping these women exit, only to enter. In New Zealand and Australia, that's the case. I believe exit services are going on in quite a few countries now. Obviously, they're happening in the Nordic countries. France has taken on the Nordic model. Ireland has recently taken on the Nordic model, both North and South now. So we've got a few different countries that do have exit services. But for the most part, no, it's a gap. It seems like whatever a woman does... Whatever she does, she will be labelled according to a certain polarising dichotomy. Uh, She'll either be a virgin or she'll be a whore, and there's really no in-between. Could you share your thoughts on that dichotomy? I think the dichotomy is a continuum, actually, because women find themselves on both ends of it at different times in life. So, you know, you can be called a whore one day and a prude the next day. We've got women who have been mothers or are mothers who enter prostitution in order to feed their kids. So they become both the virgin and the whore simultaneously. Then you've got women who have been the whore and leave because they become mothers. And I think it's also one feeds into the other where we have the justification for whoring that men use is that 
their partner or their wife has just had a baby and she's not having sex with them. And then the justification for needing to have the good woman at home is because of all those filthy whores out there. So one is used to justify the use of the other. Women were always defined in relation to men. If we're useful to them in these different instances, how do we start moving away from that? How do we start defining women as people? I think for starters, we've got to stop dividing ourselves or allowing patriarchy to divide us. You know, we need to give up the words bitch, slut, whore, prude, all of the negative misogynist words we've got to stop using them ourselves unless we're emphasizing a point against them so that would be the first place to start on the level of um, men's involvement i do think they have some responsibility to take on board here like um, one of the stats i saw was that 80 percent of men don't use women and girls and they need to start standing up and saying not in my name because it's 20 percent that do and they're saying that all men do then also just to start looking at women as human means remembering that we're biased. So every time that bias comes up, to challenge ourselves. And that's a very quiet and internal process. What do you say about the term sex work or sex worker? Oh, <laughs> I hate those terms. The reason for that is because they're an obfuscation for starters. People use those terms. They could be a pimp. They could be a punter even, or they may be somebody who's never worked a day in their lives in the sex trade, but they speak on behalf of so-called sex workers, and they say, we are sex workers. So I dislike it. I think whenever somebody says, I'm a sex worker, then the correct response to that is, what do you mean by that? I also think that it obscures what is actually happening in the trade. I was at a um, debate the other day, and I used real language. And what I mean by real language is I said, look, I'm somebody who worked in prostitution. What that means is I was one of the people doing the essing and effing. And I said it in full words because I, I don't know if you're allowed to say that on radio. Yeah, sure. Um, say it. I, yeah, okay. I said, well, I, I was one of the people, you know, who actually did the sucking and fucking. And let's get real. That's what it is. This is not two people meeting, getting along, being attracted together and then deciding, oh, yes, we'll have one person pay the other for whatever reason. This is one person being chosen because they've suppressed who they really are to give that person a fantasy. It's a um, it's a violation. Do you think it's important to be honest about these things, to name the problem? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. If we're using euphemisms to soften it all down, then we're refusing to face the reality. And how can you fix anything if you refuse to look at it? Is there anything else that you would like to add for our listeners who are mostly radical feminists and lesbians? I think if you do actually come across somebody who is currently in the um, sex trade or thinking of entering the sex trade, then you don't want to get political at them, but rather look at the reasons why they want to enter or think they need to enter or why they're there and try to unravel that with them. I think when people fight, it actually gets people digging their heels in more when most of the time the person just needs a little bit of help, you know? That was Sabrina Valise, a South Pacific representative for survivors of prostitution abuse calling for enlightenment or space international, advocating for the Nordic model of prostitution legislation. 
The next and final interview is with UK feminist Julie Bindle, a strong advocate for women's true liberation and author of the upcoming book, The Pimping of Prostitution, Abolishing the Sex Work Myth. To be honest with you, what I call myself now, uh, increasingly so, is just an actual feminist, a proper feminist, a real feminist. Because this is feminism, it's the default position. You know, the feminism that I subscribe to is what feminism really, really is. It means that you are attacking um, the, the problem of women's subordination, girls and women's subordination, at the root. And we're naming male supremacy or patriarchy or whatever you want to call it. As the cause, in other words, all women are affected by it. It's not unemployment that causes women's oppression, although that does make it worse for women. It's not racism that causes women's oppression. It just means that black women and women of colour have more oppressions to deal with and they intersect with, with, with gender oppression. I just actually call myself a feminist. I've been effectively campaigning to end male violence against women and girls for... Oh, more than 35 years now, since I was a teenager, when I met feminists um, just shortly after leaving home. And I've worked, uh, you know, across every single issue that affects women and girls, um, such as rape and domestic homicide and sexual harassment and female genital mutilation and stalking and harassment and trafficking and prostitution. And the reason why for the past couple of decades I've focused mainly on abolishing the sex trade is because it's clear that different rules apply to this issue than, for example, finding common cause with a whole range of players to end domestic violence or appealing to the better judgment of liberals about rape and sexual assault and why we need to better prevent it and prosecute it. With prostitution, you get people who should know better, so you get people who really should be the allies of women's liberation, who will support it to the death. They will make excuses for it, they will insist that it's liberating for the women, they'll insist it's necessary for men, and they will tell you something that you never ever hear political progressives say about any other social ill. They say, we'll never end it. It's here to stay. There will always be men who want to pay for sex and there'll always be women who want to sell it. So therefore, let's just patch it up a little bit and make it a bit more palatable. But what we must do, you know, under any circumstances, is not say that it should be abolished. And that is the most pessimistic view of any political people to have and yet they do have it about the sex trade so it's here to stay and we shouldn't do anything about it that's right and talking about it is wrong and you'll be labeled a swerve yep that's right and yeah. and you'll be told that you are preventing women who wish to sell sex from doing so in other words you're repressing women this is about women's liberation and freedom remember the men, the sex buyers and the pimps become the invisible man, which is why I have a chapter about the men who pay for sex, which I've entitled the, the Invisible Man, because he really is out of the picture. And who is put in front of him as a human shield? Women. I've interviewed a good, a good number of them, and you know many of them are very ambivalent about what they're doing. Many of them have, in fact, found 
themselves, not coerced because they're grown men with a full choice, but kind of peer pressured into paying for sex. They've been told if they go to regimes such as Holland or Germany or Nevada that it's normal, that it's fine, that it's acceptable. Uh, disabled men or men who find it hard to get a real date for whatever reason are told that they have a right, that they're entitled. They're told that they're helping the women out by helping them buy their children's shoes with the money that they give them. I mean, people really will bend over backwards to protect the male sex right and to uphold and maintain the system of prostitution, which has seeped so far into people's consciousness and so far into every nook and cranny of the patriarchal system that we live in that you, you, you actually get laughed at or looked at aghast if you say that you could see a world without prostitution. You know, you're never more than six feet away from a brothel, usually, unless you live you know, in a, in a cabin in the middle of nowhere, uh, somewhere out in the wilds. Um, and even then you could probably get a woman. I live in a neighbourhood that's a fairly middle-class, kind of media-type neighbourhood in North London. And it's full of restaurants and it's a bit of a destination area for people coming to the cinema or to go out to dinner or to sit and drink overpriced coffee and to look round clothes stores that have, you know, um, very expensive um, clothes for very skinny women in them. And just up from one of my favourite restaurants is a brothel. And of course, because brothels are not supposed to be licensed, they get licensed as massage parlours or saunas. The police aren't interested, but they don't care if it's not trafficking with a kind of nasty gangster from Albania or Romania or Thailand or Russia. You know, they're really not interested if it's, if it's non-trafficked prostitution or if there are no children. You're never that far from a brothel and you're never that far from a man who's looking to exploit women. One fact that, that shocked even me uh, was some research on the Chinese sex trade in, in the UK. So Chinese gangs, because this is organised crime, it's either individual entrepreneurs or, or organised criminal gangs. And it was found that in London alone, there are over 600 brothels serving Chinese men and, you know, populated by Chinese women. Now, some of those will be a walk-up, as we call them, um, which is a, a sort of old, old houses, single-storey houses, where you walk up a good few stairs and there's one room with a notice on the front with one woman in there. But, you know, some of them are bigger brothels and, and that's, that's quite horrific. I mean, it, it, it's easier to find a brothel than it is a McDonald's or a Starbucks. We're awash with, with prostitution because we have never condemned it in the correct way, except for those countries where they have criminalised the demand and decriminalised the women or whoever's selling sex, because, of course, some men are in the sex trade, and assisted those people to get out of the sex trade. Because the vast majority of people are just desperate for any other alternative than prostitution. But you have to send a message to society, not a moralistic, anti-sex, prudish one, as we're often accused of being by the pro-prostitution lobby, but a human rights 
feminist message, which is prostitution is not acceptable in any world where we wish to see equality between men and women. It is both a cause and a consequence of women's oppression. And if we didn't have women's oppression and male sexual violence towards women and girls, we couldn't have a sex market. We couldn't have prostitution. It literally would starve itself of oxygen. Prostitution couldn't exist uh, without gross inequality and, and abuse. You, you have to dehumanise uh, another person to rent access to the inside of their body for one-sided sexual pleasure. The money is the coercion. The money is the coercion. If it was equal and both parties were consenting fully, you wouldn't see the money. There would be no money involved. I'm not worried about being attacked. I'm worried about feminism being censored and, and feminists speaking of this issue being silenced. The anti-feminists have been violent in the past, but they, they won't get into my book launch. But what worries me is the fact that I have three sex trade survivors who are abolitionist activists, who are brilliant, who are coming from Australia and from San Francisco and from... Canada, um, you know, there's going to be a great, a great crowd of women, great speakers. And they've been through hell and back. And they are amazing women and they do great work and they are literally leading the fight against the sex trade. And I've asked them to come a long way and give up a lot of their time to come and help me launch this book because it's more like a project than a book and it's a gift to the, to the movement. And these women are just amazing and if they get disrespected and if anyone attempts to silence them then I will make sure that their feet don't touch the ground in a non-violent and in a very proper way because our side doesn't do violence our side doesn't do intimidation and threats and censoring we don't picket their events we don't try and stop them holding their meetings. We accept that they are the other side of the debate. Some of them are genuine, what they would call sex workers' rights activists. Some are more like pimps and profiteers, but we let them get on with it and we challenge from our own, our own corner. But those women will not be disrespected because they have been disrespected enough in their lives. Do you think that the same people who were behind picketing that other conference, the What is Gender conference, do you think those same people are behind the threats against your book launch? Well, first of all, they're the same people. You know, the Judith Butlerite warriors who seem to think that prostitution is a sexual identity, that somehow this whole issue about prostitution and who's trying to shut it down and who thinks it's sex work and liberating is of particular concern to trans women because, as the argument goes, many trans women are in the sex trade and many trans women do sex work in order to pay for surgery and hormones and because they're marginalised from other jobs. And therefore, to be against the sex trade, you're against trans women. And it's utterly ludicrous. And so the very same people who target me with accusations of transphobia also pull in all of their support when it comes to the sex trade and any opposition to that. And the reason why it's the same issue is because it's the politics of neoliberalism and it's what I call feminism for men. So any, anything that benefits men and is bad for women falls in this category of feminism for men. So the same people would argue that I'm Islamophobic because I take 
particular offence at religious men, whether they're Muslim clerics or whether they are Hasidic Jewish preachers or, or, or Catholic fundamentalists, telling women what we can do and what we can't do with our bodies and in our, in our public space. And so they would defend the, the wearing of the full face veil, they defend lap dancing and prostitution, they defend the ridiculous diagnosis of transsexuality for anyone who doesn't want to actually conform to gender norms that feminists have been trying to get rid of. So it's feminism for men and it's neoliberalism and it's Orwellian and it's crazy and it makes no sense at all. The transphobia thing and the whorephobia thing is a very handy way for, for so-called progressive, so-called leftist men who fancy themselves as being social justice warriors, who actually hate proper feminism, to be able to shut me up and shut other feminists like me up by screaming transphobe, whorephobe. And they, they love this whole transgender debate. They love the whole sex work debate because it's a way of them telling us to shut the fuck up, bitch. And of course they're going to love the idea of prostitution and upholding the right of men to do it and upholding the so-called right of women to be prostituted. I interviewed 50 survivors of the sex trade, including some women who are currently in, in prostitution, and none of them referred to themselves as sex workers. None of them. Some, some would use the term working girl, some would use the term prostitute, some would use the term taking clients or being an escort, but nobody used the term sex work. It's a highly political term that was invented by the pro-prostitution lobby back in the 1980s in order to normalise something and in order to get all of the human rights bodies and the funders on board because of course if you say something is work it means that you can have unions it means you can have workers rights it means that bosses can set up brothels and be seen as just regular guys it's very persuasive because the term prostitute is horrible i would never refer to a woman as a prostitute because she is a woman and prostitution is something done to her and yet we're supposed to destigmatize it for the women and be more polite by referring to her as a sex worker. And newspapers that I write for have decided to use the term sex work because they've been told it's the least stigmatizing and most polite term. And there was even a headline in one newspaper that I write for that really should know better. That's a, a very liberal newspaper with quality journalism that referred to 14-year-olds who were trafficked from Thailand into brothels as juvenile sex workers. So once you normalise something that is utterly horrific and that should never be normalised, which is prostitution, you can normalise a damn sight more. I've heard the term juvenile sex worker be used by people linked to Amnesty International and other human rights organisations. It's terrible. And of course, what I set out to do with my book in the first instance was to find out why, wherever you go in the world, whoever you ask, whether it's a lay person or someone with a little bit of knowledge or someone with a huge amount of knowledge about the sex trade, the default position is legalise it. Let's make it safer for the girls. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I've heard that spoken to my face, the, the women's movement would never, ever go short of funding again. People say it everywhere. And occasionally someone will surprise you and say, 
well, you know, we should clamp down on it. But often when you dig deeper than that, you know, there might be religious fundamentalists who think it's all dirty and the women are to blame as much as the men. And then, of course, if you happen upon feminists who have got the right information and attitude about this, they'll say criminalise the, the demand. They'll say, you know, let, let's end the sex trade. But the default position is legalise it. And, of course, the sex trade lobby have shifted now to use the term decriminalise because legalisation has become so, so discredited because of the evidence coming out of Holland, Nevada and Germany and Australia. So they say decriminalise it and they use New Zealand as a great example of how, you know, the women aren't forced into weekly blood tests and... Um, you know, the, the, there's there's workers' rights and the brothels are run more like co-ops and you can take your boss to court for employment issues. And, of course, it's, it doesn't work like that. It's just the same as legalisation in most ways. And, you know, for example, if, if, if I wanted to open a brothel, I would have to fill in a form that is three pages shorter than the form I would have to fill out to go to the animal shelter and adopt a dog or a cat. So it's all ludicrous. And, and, and why I set out to look at this issue about the default position was I wanted to know exactly how this message from the pro-prostitution lobby and the Liberals that support them has become so persuasive and so all-consuming. Why do people really believe that legalisation is safer? Why do people believe that the majority of women choose it? Why do they think that if men couldn't go and pay for sex when they wished to, to, to have a sexual experience, they'd be forced to go out and rape women? Why do they think that disabled men have a right to have a home delivery of a prostituted woman? Why do all of these attitudes exist amongst intelligent people with their hearts in the right place? And it's because the message is so subliminal and so linked to the male sex right and patriarchy in general that it is taking a hell of a long time to unravel. And then the second reason why we're about 30 years behind with our consciousness raising and, and our getting the message out to citizens about how the sex trade is horrific, not liberating. If you compare it to domestic violence, we have so many survivors of domestic violence. We have so many children who grew up witnessing their, their father or stepfather beat their mother. We've got so many truth-tellers about domestic violence. We tend to honour them. We appreciate them. Sometimes they end up working in the shelters that they, they were rescued by. All kinds of women, uh, even with rape, which is more difficult to talk about, we have so many truth-tellers uh, amongst women who've been raped. But with prostitution, we don't. Because there are people telling them it's sex work. We have people telling them that they are the ones doing wrong. We've got people making them feel ashamed and not the punter, the John. They're the ones with the long list of criminal records against them, not the sex buyers and the pimps. So the women who are victimised by the sex trade are much, much harder to include in a movement where we can't guarantee that they will not be further stigmatised and harmed. And the women who want to speak out and there are increasing numbers of survivor activists, thankfully, 50 of whom, as I say, I interviewed for my book. But, but when women actually want to, to speak out, when they want to help other women exit, 
when they want to be amongst their sisters who've been through what they've been through. Often, all they can find in terms of organisations and campaign groups are sex workers' rights activists. We need to speak to people who can help make policy, who can get to the people who make policy and laws. We need to remember that we don't build policy and laws on the minority. So the happy hookers and the few sex workers' rights activists that insist they love everything that they do and it's never harmed them, great. But you know what? We have the right to say, you are not representative. And we need to make sure that we have a movement that's inclusive of the women who've exited prostitution and inclusive of the issue because so many feminists even don't see this as violence against women. They're blinded by this neoliberal notion of choice and of the body being a marketplace where everything from breast milk to hair to corneas to kidneys is sold and we, and we don't blink when it's women being sold, being rented. So I think what we, what we have to do is everything that we can as feminists to ensure that our movement is inclusive of sex trade survivors. And then we need to make sure that we learn as much as we possibly can about the disasters of legalisation and decriminalisation and tell the people who will listen, who will make a difference. You know, organise our next conference on the sex trade instead of domestic violence, just this one time. Because domestic violence is spoken about everywhere. It's still a big problem. It still ruins lives. We know this. But make some room for this issue on the feminist calendar because it really matters. My friend Gail Dines, who wrote a brilliant book um, called Pornland, which if you haven't read, you really should. She's brilliant. What what Gail says is we need prostitution abolitionists, those fighting against the sex trade, to stop forgetting to include porn in this. MTV Today, with its pornification of women and men, and often very young women, is what I used to see in old Playboy pornography magazines. So it's become mainstream, and porn is driving a lot of culture, as Gail would say. And so pornography's got much more violent, much more horrific, much more misogynistic. And it is, as Gail says, it's prostitution with a camera. We don't have to have this Christian moralistic discussion about it because it's about dirty sex. We shouldn't be supporting initiatives that come from right-wingers because they're not interested in making sure that misogyny isn't produced. They're just interested in stopping sex before marriage and stopping women having any sexual autonomy. So we need to always make sure that we have a feminist perspective on this. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and it was hellish because we had very little, if no legislation to protect us. It, it It was very, very difficult, and feminism hadn't made many waves by then, and we have by now. But what's worse for young women is the way that pornography is flooding their every waking moment, from from when they see it on their cell phone, from when they're photographed against their own will by boyfriends, when they're raped and sexually assaulted, and and being made to to carry out uh, scenarios that the boys, that their rapists have seen uh, in porn film. So, So we really need to be very concerned about young women and help them get into feminism, of course. Is there anything else that you would like to add for our listeners who are mostly radical feminists and lesbians? Well, I'd love to say hello uh, to to all of your listeners and to say never give in and just to be aware that you have a huge global community 
that has your back and that we are a movement and we're a proud movement and we should look out for each other more. We should look after each other more and we should talk to each other as much as we can because really we're not that popular outside of our own (laughs) movement because what we're doing is threatening to the majority of women uh, as well as all men. Your listeners will know will know this very well uh, because we're the only oppressed groups required to love our oppressors and that makes it hellishly complicated so you know more strength to the heterosexual women absolute total respect to all women and in particular to the brave lesbians who navigate an extremely tricky set of, of of rules that we break on a regular basis That was Pat Benatar's Invincible. And now, here is WLRN's Sekhmet She-Owl with her profound and scathing commentary on the so-called sex trade and how it impacts women. You are listening to WLRN. Brought to you by the totally excellent radical feminists at Women's Women's Liberation Liberation. Radio Radio. News. News. The anti-porn, anti-prostitution stance is a long-standing feature of radical feminism, one that led to an exodus of women from the feminist movement in the 80s and the so-called sex wars. 
These days, taking issue with porn and prostitution is considered a right-wing position, because the right has always publicly condemned selling sex as immoral. But feminists were left-wing porn and prostitution abolitionists as soon as they mobilized in the 70s. Since the liberal anti-feminist women abandoned feminism over the porn debate, their self-identification as sex-positive has become a mainstream buzzword in liberal discourse. These women are made examples of by the liberal and leftist men they serve, supposedly representing female sexual liberation by being as promiscuous with men as possible, while loudly advocating for porn, prostitution, sadomasochism, and kinks that are predominantly rooted in abuse, humiliation, and degradation. Radical feminists, by comparison, are labeled sex-negative and sexually repressed, These days, the most popular terms are SWERF, meaning sex worker exclusionary radical feminist, and whorephobe, terms that pack more of a punch than sex negative. These terms are also more specific. Instead of accusing the feminist in question of being anti-sex in her personal life, they smear her for her anti-porn and anti-prostitution politics. Prostitution and marriage are the two oldest heterosexual institutions into which females are forced for the sake of physical survival. Marriage is now heavily and relentlessly romanticized because it's optional, not mandatory, for women in developed countries. The sex-positive trend regarding prostitution is a similar marketing tactic that only became necessary after women gained access to financial independence outside of marriage. Now that prostitution is not inevitable for women and girls who reject or delay heterosexual marriage, it's easier for liberal men to glamorize it as a choice by divorcing it from poverty and desperation in the female mind. What drives girls and women into prostitution now is not legal prohibition of their financial independence, but the poverty that affects more and more women regardless of their marital or employment status, poverty caused by stagnated wages and the rising cost of living. Somehow all of the pro-prostitution bros who pretend to be socialist or communist or even just progressive fail to acknowledge that fact. The dawning of the internet age, followed by the development of smartphones that provide 24-7 access to online porn, ushered in a porn culture that pornographic movie makers never could have imagined in the 1970s and 80s. Prostitution gained its own online dimension of women and girls being sold on sites like Backpage and Craigslist, not to mention the dark web. We are living in a porn culture that is unprecedented in human history, a culture where porn is normalized in mainstream media, where a person's first exposure to porn usually happens in childhood, where males distribute revenge porn featuring their ex-girlfriends or ex-wives, and where teenage girls are expected to send males nude pictures of themselves as a form of flirtation. Now feminists aren't just fighting the professionally made porn itself, but the entire culture that it spawned, and which in turn supports the porn industry. Why do real feminists oppose porn and prostitution? Because we oppose males raping females. We oppose sexual violence against females and sexual objectification of females. We've got a problem with porn and prostitution and the sex trafficking that facilitates these industries because we've got a problem with the physical, psychological, and emotional trauma that women and girls experience when they're repeatedly raped by men they don't know in the most degrading and abusive ways possible for as little as 20 bucks a pop. 
We've got a problem with living in a world that's crawling with porn-sick males who nurture their taste for sexual violence against women beginning in adolescence or late childhood and prey upon women and girls in daily life who are looking to them for romantic love. We've got a problem with underage males as young as six years old raping, assaulting, or sexually harassing little girls in greater and greater numbers because of the porn they watch. We've got a problem with women suffering from PTSD as a result of their experiences in porn and prostitution. We've got a problem with prostituted women being murdered by the men who buy and sell them at 200 times the rate that women of their same race and age are murdered in the U.S. Liberal misogynists like to create a false image of the radical feminist as anti-sex worker rather than anti-paid rape industry, effectively erasing the men who make porn and prostitution possible. Notice that these liberal misogynists never use feminists of being anti-John or anti-pimp or anti-male producer or anti-male masturbator. The way these pro-porn, pro-prostitution misogynists talk, you would think that women who sell their bodies don't have any buyers. Pimps, traffickers, directors, or producers. Keeping the men invisible in the hellscape of the sex industry is key to demonizing feminists and erasing all of the ugly, violent details of the women and girls' actual experiences. Calling abolitionist women and feminists anti-sex worker is a male reversal. The truth is that these men and their female loyalists are the ones who see prostituted women and female porn stars as non-human, worthy of being repeatedly raped, strangled, punched, pissed on, murdered, and left in a ditch once dead, Also, that men can get off and make billions of dollars. The liberal and leftist populations are full of men who like to pretend they're less woman-hating than their right-wing counterparts, but who vehemently support porn and prostitution. Men who self-describe as socialist, communist, anarchist, Marxist, or progressive insist that porn and prostitution will not only exist after the end of capitalism, but is fully compatible with an economically just society. They pretend that there is no relationship between poverty and female prostitution, no economic connection between young women doing porn and the untenable cost of living coupled with low wages for legitimate work. They attempt to cover up the fact that sex trafficking, which is usually presented as a criminal and immoral enterprise, directly supplies women and girls to the international prostitution industry. They ignore the history of prostitution, rooted in the forced economic dependence of females on males, just as they ignore all the stories of rape and abuse that ex-porn stars and former prostitutes share. These men pretend to be ignorant of the fact that a majority of prostitutes worldwide begin prostituting in childhood, and adult men routinely request underage girls when they visit brothels. Yet if you ask them their opinion on pedophilia, they'll act as if they're outraged by it. Liberal and leftist men sweep the mountain of damning truths about the paid rape industry under the rug and teach the women and girls who follow them that selling sex to men who don't recognize your humanity is a form of power. Their logically sound political argument in favor of the paid rape industry, based on the socialist or communist or progressive or liberal principles they claim to believe in, is non-existent. But they don't have to have political or intellectual integrity. They don't have to make sense, because they're men. They're the ones in control of these leftist movements, and they can twist or ignore the text and logic of the political ideologies they subscribe to if they want. The women who follow them won't question it or call them out. 
Instead, they'll slam radical feminists and anti-porn, anti-prostitution women for being sex worker exclusionary or whore-phobic, failing to recognize the irony of calling themselves feminists while referring to certain women as whores and defending the sexual interests of violent men. Most young women who defend porn and prostitution have never done it themselves, and never will, which is why it's ridiculous for them to parrot male propaganda about how empowering and liberating porn and prostitution are for females. These paid rape supporters always silence and dismiss exited women who tell the truth about selling sex, sometimes accusing them of lying and otherwise pretending they don't exist. It's true that some prostitutes and strippers and porn stars who are currently selling themselves defend the industry, but according to the exited women who have put porn and prostitution behind them, women and girls who are still actively selling sex will naturally defend what they do for the sake of their own economic and psychological survival. If we're going to listen to anyone about the realities of porn and prostitution, it should be exited women who have enough psychological distance from their experiences and who no longer rely on these industries as sources of income. Almost without exception, those women tell stories of rape, physical abuse, drug and alcohol addiction, PTSD, depression, and trauma when they talk about the porn and prostitution industries. Many of the women who work as porn and prostitution abolitionists are themselves former prostitutes or porn actors, and the fact that they are now dedicating their careers to shutting down the industries they once belonged to should tell us everything we need to know about whether porn and prostitution are good for females. If the misogyny and violence weren't sufficient reasons to be porn and prostitution abolitionists, the racism, classism, and lesbian hatred should convince any decent woman to choose the abolitionist side. Where a person stands on porn and prostitution reveals her degree of racism, classism, and lesbian hating. The majority of women who prostitute themselves are poor black and brown women who are often born into poverty or the working class and struggle to make ends meet in low-paying jobs. Indigenous women everywhere are at significantly higher risk of being raped, trafficked, and prostituted compared to non-indigenous women, especially white women. 60% of prostitutes murdered in the U.S. are black. Porn is openly racist toward women of color, catering to white men's sexual fetishizing of them by using racialized language and racist tropes when characterizing or styling the women. Considering the long history of sexual violence that white men have committed against black, brown, and indigenous women via colonialism, and how a majority of missing and murdered prostitutes are black or indigenous, Claiming that prostitution is a form of power and liberation for women of color is racist gaslighting. And when white people make these statements, there's good reason for feminists to suspect them of deliberately trying to manipulate and brainwash young women of color into accepting their own sexually violent deaths at the hands of men, who are often white. As for porn... No white woman can claim to be anti-racist while defending white men who produce and masturbate to racist porn featuring women of color. White people who argue that they can give up white supremacy but keep their racist porn are lying about their anti-racist politics, and they don't view women of color as human beings. The causal relationship between poverty and prostitution 
proven by the overwhelming majority of street prostitutes coming from the poor and working classes, means that middle and upper class women advocating for porn and prostitution are really advocating for the continued economic inequality that gives them class privilege while driving poor women to sell sex for survival. They don't think that poor and working class women deserve better than submitting to repeated rape for money. They don't think that poor and working class women deserve higher wages for legitimate employment, and they don't actually want to see the end of capitalist exploitation and wealth inequality. Over 90% of prostituted women and girls, regardless of residential country, report that they would stop prostituting if they could afford their basic necessities some other way. Middle and upper class women declaring that prostitution is a choice women and girls make because it gives them power and freedom are actually just protecting middle and upper class men's ability to rape these poverty class females for money. They're protecting the class system and exploitative capitalism that gives them status and privilege over prostituted women and girls. They're protecting the men who give them class privilege. Not only does poverty force some lesbians into prostitution, which is especially traumatizing for them as they are repulsed by heterosexual intercourse and male bodies, but pornography has contributed to the gross sexual objectification and fetishizing of lesbians by heterosexual men. The heterosexuals who jack off to fake lesbian porn significantly outnumber the heterosexuals who actually care about and support real lesbians. That's how homophobic heterosexual society is. Men only want lesbians to exist as a sexual fantasy that they can control and consume, not as real women who reject them and fall in love with other women. Nothing about so-called lesbian porn has anything to do with real lesbians, and it only serves to degrade lesbians and lovemaking between women, all for male pleasure. The men who make and use pseudo-lesbian porn are the same men who want to rape and kill real lesbians, rejecting males. And their heterosexual and bisexual handmaidens are right there with them, treating real lesbians with scorn, attempting to bully lesbians into submitting to rape by trans-identified men, feeding into the lack of lesbian-only spaces, organizations, and positive media all while defending and masturbating to fake lesbian porn starring heterosexual and bisexual women. Pornography is lesbian-hating propaganda that reduces lesbians to a fetish for heterosexual and bisexual men and women, which is ironic considering they like to accuse real lesbians of fetishizing the female body. Porn and prostitution are the ultimate manifestations of the woman-hating, lesbian-hating, racist, classist, capitalist society that we live in, which is why men everywhere love these industries. They found a way to rape females and make money at the same time. What could be more satisfying to them than that? As usual, if these forms of oppression against women and girls are ever going to stop or improve, women are the ones who will make it happen. We can't wait around for males to suddenly grow a conscience or become something other than they are. As long as they can find women and girls to put in their pornography, they're going to do it. 
Feminists must respond by doing everything we can to challenge poverty and homelessness in our societies and create resources and alternatives for mentally ill females, underage lesbians disowned by heterosexual family, single women from poor and working class backgrounds, female college students struggling with education costs, and all other vulnerable women and girls. Our political action dig picture into account and attack the material reasons for women and girls being sucked into porn and prostitution. We must also advocate for the Nordic model in our own countries or states, that model being the only proven method of reducing prostitution, and speak up against the liberal propaganda surrounding decriminalization. Feminists should have zero tolerance for pornography in their personal lives, and that means rejecting males who use it. For some feminists, it might mean quitting porn yourself. All of this begins with making a commitment to prioritizing the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being of all females above everything else, and letting that guide you. That concludes WLRN's 18th edition podcast for October 5th, 2017. Thanks for tuning in. This is Julia Beck signing off. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please send us an email to wlrnewscontact at gmail.com. WLRN is expanding our reach by creating captivating and compelling videos of all of our podcasts and putting them onto our new YouTube channel to be launched on October 15th. This is Amanda. Thank you for tuning in to Women Powered Radio. And I'm Thistle Patterson. The Turf Shirts are here. Once we get enough pre-orders for Nidra Johnson's turf shirts, we will place an order for multiple shirts and women everywhere can dare to wear them if they so choose. Click on our t-shirts tab and order yours today for a donation of $20 or more. Not only that, drum roll please. Announcing WLRN's t-shirt design contest. Is there a feminist phrase or logo you'd like to see in the femisphere? A famous quote by Andrea Dworkin? Or a quip from current gender critical thought? Create a design around your idea and submit it to WLRN, and you could be the winner of our t-shirt design contest and get a t-shirt with your design for free. Click on our t-shirts tab for instructions for how to submit your design to WLRN's t-shirt design contest. This is Thistle Pedersen, signing off for now. Until next time, keep on keeping on. Thanks for tuning in to WLRN. This is Sekhmet Shiaul. As we move into the fall and winter months, we wanted to take a look back at our foremothers and all that they achieved before we came along. Next month's edition will focus on second wave feminists and feminism to honor and preserve their wisdom. We always release our handcrafted podcast the first Thursday of every month, so stay tuned for our November 2nd release. If you're interested in more interviews from the front lines of women's liberation from the sex trade, head over to WLRN's interviews page to hear the full interview Renee Gerlich held with Iceland's Stiamot founder, Gudrun Johnstotter. Stiamot is a grassroots organization that combats sexual violence and provides support for people who have been sexually abused. Gudrun has inspiring stories to tell of empowerment and bringing down sex clubs, exposing Johns, punters, and police indifference, and helping women regain their humanity. Thanks for staying tuned to Collectively Produced Feminist Radio here at WLRN. This is Jenna DeQuarto. Until next time, stay strong. But how will we find our way out of this? What is the antidote for the patriarchy?
patriarchal kiss. 